Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Today, I'd like to start our time together by asking you to weigh in on a question that has been permeating my conversations lately, and I'm sure some of yours too, which is, why should we go back to in-person church? So I'll, I'll color in this question a little bit. Um, it has come from people who have found online church adequately edifying, or those who work odd hours, those who prefer to meet with God somewhere other than a church building. And it's been alongside those who are taking a break from church because they've found themselves kind of unable to muster the motivation to engage in church again. Um, is this something you guys have been experiencing in your conversations? I sure have. I've probably had five or six conversations on this in, I'd say, the last week or two. And I think the statistics are showing that uh, more and more uh, believers in this country are are not interested in attending church, Mm -hmm. but want to have a personal relationship with Jesus or perhaps find ways to meet with a group of friends uh, in their home and so on. So I think that this is a growing widespread problem that has more to do uh, with shifts and attitudes towards authority, uh, with the inadequacy of the church uh, than COVID, though COVID did contribute. Mm -hmm. So I think Mm -hmm. the issue is bigger. So before we really dive in, or as we're diving in, what do we mean when we say church? Well, I, I, I'm glad you started with that question. I think it's just the right question to begin with. Uh, and you've got to know what something is before you can know what it's for and if it's, a, if it's good at being that type of thing. Probably my favorite systematic theology text is Millard Erickson's Christian Theology. And, and he, he, he writes this. I like the way he puts this. He, he says, um, 20th century, with its widespread aversion to philosophy and particularly to metaphysics and ontology, is far less interested in the theoretical nature of something than in its concise historical manifestations. Thus, much of modern theology is less interested in, this, in the essence of the church. And so I think really we should start with this question, what is the church? What's the essence of the church? And go from there to ask the more practical questions about how should we be involved? Mm. I agree. And uh, along those lines, uh, I think what I would say is we must distinguish the universal church from the local church. Mm-hmm. And uh, a very simple statement, though it doesn't really communicate as much as it needs to, is that the church universal is the body of Christ on earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, the universal church is an ontological reality. It is, it is a connectedness of believers that are caught up into this whole, W-H-O-L-E, that has a calling. Mm-hmm. But at this point, Let's just say that it is, in some sense, to be Christ's body on earth now that he has ascended, and we are his body on earth. Hmm. Uh, Now, we will talk more 
about, well, then what does that body do? But, but, but that's the essence of it. Now, the local church, provided that it incorporates genuine believing Christians. And that doesn't mean there aren't people there that are unbelievers. It just is a church that is founded on at least mere Christianity, biblical doctrines, uh, would be what, what I would consider an exemplification uh, an instance of 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 the body. Mm-hmm. So you might want to think about it like this, and then I'll I'll give it over to Stan here. But you know, you can have the word red, and that's a type of word. And that word could be uh what's called tokened, or there could be individual examples of it in several books. So there could be this word, that word, that word, and they're all little scribbles. But they're all what you might call tokens of that type of word, mm-hmm. red. And I would say the local church is a as an individual token or outpost of of this body of Christ. It's not a part of the body of Christ. So the local a specific local church isn't part of this whole. So we the body of Christ is the sum of all the churches in the world, each church is itself an exemplification or a particular case of the body of Christ. The reason I qualify that the doctrines have got to be surrounding mere Christianity is that an apostate, quote, church is not really a church because it's really not part of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. So those would be churches that would deny the Trinity or Mm -hmm. fundamental doctrine. Stan, what's your view? Well, that's really a helpful distinction, bringing in the type token distinction. I think that uh, so many times we look at a token, a specific instance of a church and say, that's what all churches must be or should be and fail to distinguish between one specific incarnation of a church and what the church is. It's, it's, it's a difference between essential properties and accidental properties. You know, for example, I am essentially human. If I lost that property, I wouldn't exist, but I can lose a lot of properties and gain a lot of other properties. I, uh, I now have the property of being six foot five. I certainly didn't always have that property, but nonetheless, I was me when I was four foot eight. And uh, in, in the same way that the church, if we can be clear on what it is essentially, then we can avoid errors of identifying too closely the universal church, what the church essentially is with the different incarnations that we see uh, in our culture today, uh, in other cultures, across time. Uh, and, and, you know, this has been the problem in missiology forever, where missionaries will go into a different culture and think, that the way to incarnate the universal church in that place looks like it does in our place, you know, going to the Middle East and building churches with pews when that's not the culture to sit in pews in rows. It's to be on mats, for instance. And so we often commit that error when we don't distinguish between the universal church and the local incarnation of that in the local church. Mm. Yeah, that's an excellent distinction. Well, JP, you also mentioned something else I think is important when we talk about the most used analogy of the church in Scripture is the body of Christ. And there are so many implications of that analogy 
uh, there's a, uh, a clear implication that Christ is the head of the church and that he works through the church as the, as the head or more properly, the mind works through the body. Uh, and there's a connectedness of, of all members of the church, whether it's universal or the local incarnation, there's a mutual dependency. There's a, a variety of gifts. You know, the scriptures talk about not everybody's a hand or a foot or an eye, but we all need one another. And all those things I think are essential features of the church being the body of Christ. Well, I think, uh, Jordan, uh, something important to, to tease out about what Stan said is, is this. I think the, the concept of the body of Christ, uh, I've read Plato and Aristotle, a lot, of, a lot of their writings, and I've read the scriptures all the way through. And I think it's one of a small handful of the most brilliant genius concepts in ancient literature. Uh, biblical or extra biblical it is an unbelievably pregnant concept full of life and meaning and uh one of the implications of the body as stan said different parts have a different role what that means is it's just wrong-headed and a fool's errand to compare myself to somebody else who has a different role than i do let's say Mm. Uh, And and so today we tend to to exonerate good public speakers Mm -hmm. and uh, people kind of feel like if they're not able to kind of speak in front of a group or I don't know, lead a Sunday school class well, that, you know, they don't, they don't count. And that, that is on the face of this, of it absurd because there are people like in my local congregation, that can't speak at all well, except for friendship one-on-one sorts of things. But they're so getting after serving and uh, expressing hospitality mm-hmm. or, or doing evangelism. Uh, but, but their role, they're supposed to be good at playing their role, not wishing they were playing somebody else's. <laughs> So this concept gives us freedom from shame and guilt that we are not doing the really big role. And so we don't count. That is fundamentally flawed from the get go because of the concept of the body of Christ. Yeah. And that leads to, I might be getting ahead of us here, Jordan, if so, uh, rein me in, but, uh, <laughs> Will do. one of the implications of that wrong theology you're referring to JP is the temptation to professionalize ministry, to hire those to do certain things that are defined as essential and to have everybody else sort of just show up and watch the professionals do the ministry. And that is not the church. That is clearly a violation of these clear teachings that we are all necessary in the body and all have gifts to contribute. And only when we are all together as a body functioning in unison is the church truly the church. I agree. I I'd like to dig into what involvement in the local body of believers meant for Christians over the past. 2000 years. I think in there, we'll be able to get into what church is for. Well, if you don't mind, I'm going to take that question 
And I'm going to uh, turn it back to the first one you, you started with. Mm -hmm. And that's the question you're getting about why should I go back to, quote, church? Uh, because, you know, I, it's an it's an effort to get there. I may be working at night and I I'm I like my own relationship with the Lord. I'm doing fine. And we, I've got friends and we get together and, you know, we're reading a book together and so on. Well, I believe in all those things. And I think that there would be exceptions for people who worked a certain, maybe the third shift and the, you know, the church's meeting times that were available to them were when they needed to sleep. I, that would make sense to me. I, I would get that. But, but the reason that people are to go to church, in my opinion, is, is twofold. The, the first one is that it allows me to play my role in the local manifestation of the body in a way that will benefit other members. So notice that all the people who you verbalized raising this question, it was all about them. <clears throat> Uh, it was all about, well, I seem to be doing well. I mean, why should I exert the effort? Um, I'm able to have a meaningful relationship with the Lord by myself. Well, I'm thinking, whoop-de-doo, good for you. But uh, if you live your life primarily about you, you're not going to have a very flourishing life. Jesus taught was very clear that the path to a life that is deep and rich and meaningful is a path of learning to give yourself away to others for the kingdom's sake, self-denial. And uh, go, so going to a local assembly provides me with an opportunity to serve and build up other people in a way that can't be done with the other plan. So it could be a both and. I'm not suggesting people stop their own individual relationships or not have that study with their friends. But that's one reason. The second reason is, in, in the case of, of a local bo a body of believers, uh, your physical body is not just a sum of the parts that make it up, uh, because your body is a unity, and then the different organs are sort of de defined by the role they play in the body. So a heart is, is whatever pumps blood to keep the body alive so uh, by analogy the members of the body get their identity as members from the role they play in the whole mm -hmm. and that whole cannot be reduced to just a sum of the parts now one i've already talked about serving others but then one implication of that is that there is something about corporate worship that cannot be captured by individual worship or just a handful of people. But by having a, I don't have a number here, it could be a house church, I don't know. But by having a, a, a group that identifies themselves as a congregation, worshiping together is an experience of honoring God standing beside your brothers and sisters and that just can't be uh substituted for even though individual worship is absolutely wonderful and needed so those would be two reasons it's not about you 
and it gives you a chance to 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 do things that you can't do by yourself. Mm-hmm. And we see this in the very early chapters of Acts as the believers are just uh, starting to multiply, and we see immediately them gathering together for just this purpose. Acts two forty two, I think, is the clearest statement on the essential features of the church and what all churches that are truly incarnating the universal church have in common. Uh, Quote, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So three things listed being together and, and studying God's truth, the scriptures, the apostles teaching in that context Uh, Prayer and worship, which is, of course, defined very broadly, not just singing a few songs, but uh, prayer and worship taken holistically. And then community, uh, again, being essential. Uh, And and added to that, I think the other core or key passage is Matthew 28, Mm -hmm. uh, 18, where, in a sense, Jesus commissions the disciples to be the church uh, and what they're to be doing together. He says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So being on mission together, being involved in spreading the word and discipling those who come to faith throughout the world uh, in all nations. Hmm. Well, I want to pick up on that, if I may. uh, Please. uh, Stan, Um, I want to recommend a book that uh, is really a must read. I don't say that about many books, but this book is the best thing I have read on the mission of the church, Hmm. especially as it addresses contemporary tendencies to make that mission something slightly different. And I'm speaking specifically about the progressive church and social justice. And the the book is written by two uh, really fine uh, individuals, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. And the book is called, What is the Mission of the Church? Just an outstanding book that you should have in your library if you're not going to be able to read it soon, because you've got a list of other books to read, but you should have it. Now, let me just, if I may, read a few texts from it. Please. Uh, it, It says here, the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples By declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, notice by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands together now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. And so there it is... uh, evangelism, disciple-making, bringing into the local community for corporate worship and obeying Jesus uh, according to what he's taught us. Now, let me read a, a related passage from the foundation of the people of God in the Old Testament. From the very beginning, their mission was primarily to be witnesses Now, what that meant was they were to witness to what they had seen and heard God do. Now, with that in mind, let's take a look at the summary here. 
uh, they're talking about the disciples in, in the in the church. The disciples were to witness, not build, not establish, not usher in, not even build for the kingdom, but to bear witness to the kingdom. Uh, they were to be subjects and heralds, not primarily agents of the kingdom. Now, they do talk about being agents, so that's not something that they're eschewing or saying we shouldn't do. But our fundamental call is to be ambassador witnesses or heralds or testifiers to what God has, what we have seen and heard God do, with the primary center of that, the, the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the primary thing we're to bear witness to, but we're also to, to tell stories about what God has done for us, uh, answers to prayer, things of that sort are, are to be borne witness to. So uh, there is a heavy herald and witnessing component. So Jordan and Stan, what, what that tells me is that equipping people to do that and then to turn them into disciples is a central purpose of the church. Thus, apologetics and worldview training, which you cannot read the book of Acts without seeing the regular use of reasoning with people, quoting their own poets and prophets back to them, was a central part of heralding. It wasn't just announcing <laughs> Uh, the gospel in a vacuum when the culture couldn't understand or accept it, but it was laying the, the uh, plausibility struck, the foundation, and addressing that. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to make one more quote. Certainly. And this is about social justice. They're very, very strong about biblical, but not social justice. And they've got two chapters as to why this may be properly motivated, but it is a very, very confused expression of what Christ wants us to be about and do. And they say the following, in Leviticus 19.15, there is an important verse for establishing the fact that justice in the Bible is a fair process, not an equal outcome. Quote, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. And that means to do so honestly and fairly and without showing partiality either to the poor and victimized, you might say, or to the powerful and the victimizers. And it says... Justice is always on the side of truth. Uh, charity and generosity and good stewardship are certainly called for in this life. But here, justice means doing what is fair, not making outcomes the way we think they ought to be. Hmm. So uh, there are going to be inequalities of outcome that are due to all kinds of factors, including a person's motivation and choices. But the church is not called to work for 
equality of outcome, but it, it is to deal, to, to behave justly, and that means fairly and impartially and honestly, uh, to give people a fair opportunity to have their issues redressed. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty powerful corrective mm -hmm. of, of what is being fed people today about uh, being tolerant mm -hmm. uh, because the contemporary view of tolerance, which says that you're not even supposed to judge that other people are doing something wrong, has nothing to do with the church. It's got nothing to do with it. So this book and what we're talking about here is a very important corrective, I think, for people to hear. Mm -hmm. Thanks for hearing me. Absolutely. And back to uh, actually our last podcast, uh, that's one of those distinctions that if it's missed, namely the distinction between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome can lead into all sorts of errors. And you put your finger on one and you named, you named it uh, Progressive Christianity. Uh, interesting that you brought that up. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to is actually done by two of your colleagues, JP, uh, Scott Ray and Sean McDowell. It's called Think Biblically. Yeah. Conversations on Faith and Culture. And recently they interviewed, interviewed a woman named Alyssa Childers, and she has written a book called Another Gospel, question mark, which challenges this uh, progressive Christianity's gospel that builds so many things into what the gospel actually is that are simply not biblical and actually are counterproductive to the mission of the church as, uh, as, as the end. Now, uh, you know, you make the distinction well that there is a role of us being agents of mercy and justice in a biblical sense, but but the progressive wing of Christianity, as it's called these days, and as it grows steam, is really going down in a very different road in terms of what justice actually is. Mm -hmm. Well, I just saw Alyssa uh, this week. I was in Atlanta, oh. and uh, she spoke, and I shared at this meeting. I highly treasure her. That book is excellent. And uh, the younger generation is moving rapidly towards uh, progressive Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I don't care to go into it, but uh, you can tease it out if you want, Stan. But uh, you're absolutely right. This heralding and bearing witness to and then building disciples is at the core of the purpose of the church. Uh, and these other matters do flow out of that, but they are never to be a substitute for it. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's important. Now, now, one other thing that I have got to mention, because I hear this all the time without qualification. In fact, I heard it today from a pastor online, and it's the idea that we're not supposed to judge people. Now, um, that drives me up a wall when Christians say, we're not, who's you, who are you to judge? We're not to judge. And the reason it bothers me is because I don't know what they mean by judge. Uh, there are two different concepts of judgment in the New Testament. One is to condemn. The second is to evaluate or assess. Mm. We are to judge. Uh, if we are to 
evaluate and assess. Uh, we are not to condemn. Now, that doesn't mean when you assess something, you say it's wrong or right. So you, mm-hmm. we are to do that. We are to be about the business of saying that that behavior or those beliefs are immoral or wrong or dishonoring to God. That's evaluation. And that includes a judgment, if you mean by that, accepting the proposition that this is not proper behavior. But when I say condemn, that means that I, I assess you so that I can elevate myself above you and make myself out to be superior and holy and you to be less worthy than I am. Mm. That's what we're not to do. Mm-hmm. And Jesus constantly targeted that. But then he turns right around after he says, don't judge and says, you know, take the log out of your eye so that you can see the splinter in your brother's eye. Well, that, that implies that we are supposed to be telling our brother, dude, you got a splinter in your eye. Come on, shape up. But we got to make sure that we're, you know, looking to ourselves first. So the church is to be about the business of assessing and uh, evaluating itself, others, what have you, but not for the purpose of elevating us one person above another. That's I don't want anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which really comes back to our point about the body and, you know, how many times have we, you know, looked at an eye and wished to be an eye, even though we're a pinky and that analogy bears fruit there too. And it speaks even to the word that is used of the church in scripture, ecclesia, which was actually a term initially of a political assembly of citizens of ancient Greek states who, who, who came together. It's, it's, it's called out, it's called together and uh, and it's the notion of the church being not of the culture or driven by the culture or determined by the culture's thought patterns, but called out as a separate people to think biblically, to think uh, God's thoughts after him, and to live in such a way that they evidence and incarnate that that different reality that, that God is seeking to to establish through his church. You bet. You bet. Good. That's a great point. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www. Global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. One other thing that I have heard quite a lot from pastors, and I wondered, JP, when you said, I've heard this from my pastor, if this is what you're going to say, 
but I've heard many, many times, the local church is the hope of the world. Have you ever mm. heard this? Yes. The local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. Uh, there was a really interesting article in the Atlantic in early June um, by Peter Weiner. And he, he said this, and I think this makes a really great distinction. We're on a distinction train today. Um, the church is not the hope of the world. Its purpose is to be a witness to the hope of the world, even if that witness is often imperfect. I like that. Isn't that great? Mm -hmm. I, I liked how he put that because I think it takes that individualistic impetus off of the shoulders of the individuals in the congregation and allows us to align more accurately with what is happening around us, what the spirit is leading us to. Mm -hmm. Well, and it also speaks to your point earlier about the history of the church to the ways that God's church and work have been incarnated throughout history. Uh, Ralph Winter is a very, very wise man. Missiologist has written quite a bit. He wrote in a book called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, a great article where he distinguishes the modes that the church has historically and continues to exist in. He defines them as mo a modality and sodality distinction that there is the, 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 the local church, uh, which is, is, is a mode, but also there are, we might call them parachurch or other types of bodies like the Moravians, for instance, or you, know, you, you, you name it in church history, groups that were called to do something specific for the kingdom of God and were equally important and valuable, uh, but they weren't actually a church per se in the sense of a local church. So I think that sense of the local church of the hope of the world misses a key missiological and I'd say biblical distinction that has historically shaped how we think about what it is we do in terms of fulfilling the call of the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Mm -hmm. JP, do you have thoughts on that? Have you, have you seen that? I like to think about us, uh, and Stan, that's, a, that's such a key distinction that was made a good while ago, but it's, it's sometimes forgotten today. Mm -hmm. It's good to get that back on the table. Um, I like to think of us as the church, my, my local church, the part of the body at, at Biola where I teach at Talbot School of Theology, uh, your organization that you guys are working with and so on. Uh, I, the sodalities and, and modalities, I like to think of little pockets of them as an underground countercultural movement of people. Mm. Uh, we are to be kind of an underground rebel group. Uh, we are countercultural. We are a movement that is seeking to disrupt through the proclamation of the gospel the structures and the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms and the social structures that the demonic and human flesh have set up that are hostile to the proclamation of the gospel mm. and, and the making of disciples. And through our proclamation and through the, our, the way we act toward one another, we provide little outposts of the kingdom, which are utterly countercultural and by the very nature of who we are together, undermine 
these other aspects of society that are tearing people down and shutting off the uh, preaching of the gospel. So I'm not saying that that our calling is that we are to be directly uh, involved in targeting those systems. There may be, depending on what it is, that might be a secondary important thing. But we inadvertently destroy those by being who we are as an underground countercultural movement. I mean, Jesus did not speak uh, against slavery, and neither did Paul. But it's pretty clear <laughs> that the movement that, and the type of communities they set in motion would make it impossible for a kind of master-slave relationship where one was just subservient to the other to survive. Well, I think we do the same thing. And what that means is we've got to make sure that we are not baptizing secular ideas and slapping verses on them and saying that to be a Christian is to do this. I'm not saying we shouldn't receive secular learning. No, I do believe in that. But I do think we too often let our culture tell us what it means to be a Christian. And I, we, we can't do that. That's foundational. Mm-hmm. Well, and I find it fascinating that you use the word underground church. You know, the underground church is historically in cultures like modern day China, where the church cannot meet and fulfill her role and so it goes underground, and it often is the healthiest incarnation of the church. Some of the churches in places like modern-day China are flourishing and are truly fulfilling that call of the church to be the church. And it's interesting, actually, in the U.S., there's a movement uh, that's calling themselves the underground church because there's a sense that, you know, yeah, we, we all agree that scripture is clear that we must not, in the words of Hebrews 10.25, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and meet together and be the church. But it doesn't necessarily look like we've historically, in the last, what, 100, 200 years, thought of it being. And so there's a lot of home churches that are springing up that are skewing buildings and huge infrastructures and pastoral staff, the, the professionals are saying that no, we're all the church. And as we meet together, wh- what is it to actually be the church in a different, in a different way, a different, uh, a, a equally biblical, but a different form mm-hmm. that really does meet that Acts 242 criteria of a church? Mm-hmm. JP, I'd like to push back on something you said earlier, yes. or maybe you know, add add some light to it about the Good. the younger generation, my generation, uh, swaying toward a more progressive Christianity. What I have noticed, and it's been interesting, it, what you said about um, the kind of rebel group that we are called to be. Uh, reminded me of something that Bishop Robert Barron and Jordan Peterson talked about in a podcast recently. And one of the things that Jordan Peterson was bringing to Bishop Barron as a question was, how is it that you are not able to sell this grand adventure to a generation? And one of the things that Bishop Barron said was, you're right, we're not. We're not selling Christianity as this, this wonderful adventure. And, you know, further up and further in into the 
the love of God and this community where we're selling them cheap imitations of social justice and these different things. And I think one thing that's distinctive about my generation, because we've grown up in a world of advertising is that our BS meters are pretty good. Mm. So just as you were talking about Stan, I think my generation is taking one of three kind of options as we're looking at the current state of the evangelical church in particular. Uh, One is to simply not go to leave the church, to decide that an individual faith is going to be as good as we can get. Um, The second is to participate in home churches. And the third, which truly is greatly surprising to me is that There are some preliminary statistics that are saying that the more traditional, the Orthodox Christian, the Anglican, the Catholic churches are experiencing a huge rise in participation from members of my generation, Hmm. which surprises me. And a lot of it is for the reasons we've previously mentioned. We have looked around and noticed the church is not doing what the church should do. So let's find a place that is. So these, these underground churches or even a more traditional trying to return, trying to get as close to the source material as possible. I think that's an interesting movement in our culture right now. And Mm -hmm. I I wonder how those statistics will shape out in the next few years. Well, I'll say something that you two might not agree with, and uh, maybe many of our viewers won't, but I am troubled by the movement of Bible-believing Christians to high church, uh, to uh, the Anglican and to evangelical Episcopal churches. And the reason is really twofold. First, I have always suspected that underlying this desire to reconnect with tradition and with the, hist- with the earliest, most pristine versions of Christianity, which I don't think actually this is, but uh, to, to do that is actually a surface reason. I think the real reason is because they lack authentic experiences of the power of God and the presence of God, or conjured up or kind of silly, too wild expressions of it. And as a result, they soothe themselves for the emptiness of their experiential relationship with God by going towards a formal recitation of uh, formalities that uh, I think become an easy substitute because it's easy to let yourself off the hook for not having an experiential encounter with God regularly and experiencing his presence if you're going through these things. So my my first thing is, I think the solution is for the evangelical church, not only to, to do a better job of its teaching, but to do a better job of leading people into experiencing God's presence in an authentic way. And I want to be certain, I want to emphasize that. Uh, the second thing is that uh, for the life of me, I can't see uh, Jesus and the sorts of churches that he, and especially Paul and, and the apostles started in the New Testament, looking like high church 
services. I just can't visualize that. Hmm. There, when I went to Dallas Seminary, uh, it may have been one of Howard Hendricks' sons, but someone did his THM thesis on the nature of the local church in the first three or four centuries before things became formal, I guess the first three. Uh, and he said they were house churches that where people uh, celebrated the Lord's table, however you view that, and different people brought a teaching. They practiced uh, body life and worship together. And there were some who rose to oversee the, the uh, care of people and the doctrinal uh, stability and, and the teaching ministry. But that was shared. It was more informal, like the house church movement today. Now, I can't visualize a carpet, a construction worker from Nazareth uh, and his disciples undergoing the kinds of services that would characterize recitations uh, and incense and, and, and that sort of thing. So I, I know a lot of people have counterarguments. They say, well, incense is just an attempt to stimulate another one of your senses and bring that into your love for God. I, okay, I think that's a decent point. But I'm still having trouble with that whole approach to what a worship service looks like and, and trying to compare it to what I think was what the New Testament and the first at least two, two and a half centuries of the church did. Now, you could argue that that wasn't normative, that that was just an account of what they did, but that doesn't hold normatively. And I, I think that that would be a fair rejoinder. Nevertheless, I, I would rather err on the side of getting as close as we can to what they did than on the side of feeling too much freedom to veer from it. But I don't have a knockdown drag out argument for my view. I, um, I'm, I might take a little more charitable view on that, uh, but I think the essential point you're making I'm agreeing with, and that is people are drawn to these other traditions because the evangelical tradition is less and less incarnating right again that acts absolutely 242 matthew 18 notion of the church and i'll give you i'll give you examples in all three well all four areas so apostles teaching anymore uh you go you sit you listen to a sermon that is often very superficial does not engage the life of the mind, does not engage the theology seriously, or even the text of scripture that seriously. Uh, there's not a lot of time for interaction on it. You might have questions, but you certainly can't raise your hand in the middle and say, uh, that doesn't follow or help me understand what you're saying because I've, I've, I've heard this counter argument. So, so there's not a real engagement in the apostles teaching in the way we tend to engage on, um, on, on a given Sunday morning the scriptures. Uh, worship has been reduced to singing a few songs, not expressing one's gifts as an act of worship, as I mentioned, as Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 talks about, uh, and seeing all of life as worship. And thirdly, community tends not to be uh, as, as true, deep, and interdependent uh, as it should be. Uh, I know many people who have had 12, 18 months now where they've not been able to attend their local church and there's been no 
Nobody reached out to them, checked in on them. Maybe somebody in the pastoral staff had them on a list to call, but it wasn't a true connection. It was just sort of a check the box. Okay. I called and said hi to this person. And so I think that's, you know, that's leading to a lot of people looking to other incarnations of the church to say, well, maybe I can find uh, a, a, a deeper commitment to the apostles teaching uh, worship, prayer and community there, as well as again, the uh, the missional nature where mm-hmm. I can be involved in the work of the ministry, not just a bystander watching the professionals do it. Hmm. I think you're right on, Stan. I really do. Uh, and what's an it? There's an interesting application of what you just said, because Alyssa Childress made the point, and she's been working with progressive Christians for a long time. She made the point that every single one of them that she met so far has come from an evangelical church. All of them, every single one, has come out of classic evangelicalism. And Mm -hmm. her point was that she believes that progressive theology and ideas are not embraced because of their inherent superiority to historic Christian ideas, or they're more reasonable or what have you. What's really going on is psychological. They are reacting against and they're angry toward perceived hypocrisy, deadness, self-righteousness, judgmentalism. Call it what what you want, Hmm. but that litany of things that they correctly or incorrectly thought themselves to see or did see in in the evangelical church. So I, I know a person who has bought the progressive movement hook, line, and sinker. Well, his parents went to an even a classic evangelical church, and the father was a child abuser, mm. uh, physically and verbally, and uh, the, they were very different when they were home, and, and he just said, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Sure. And so he has spent his life reacting and, and getting his anger out against evangelicals by moving to a full-born progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not doing an ad hominem. I'm giving what I think is the analysis of what's really call, driving this, just like you said, Stan, uh, in terms of the drive towards uh, maybe high church. I think the same thing has been going on in the drive towards the progressive church movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm struck by no, notable counterexamples that I think point a way forward. And there are churches that evangelical churches that seem to be flourishing and have flourished, maybe even more so in the COVID era. Mm-hmm. That had a very different thought about what church is. Uh, I, I'm thinking of one church that I have some experience with growing up in Ohio that it kind of flipped the model. Uh, it, it, it took, uh, small groups to be the church and the larger entity supported them as opposed to small groups kind of being things that feed into the, the Sunday morning worship. And, and what it, what it meant was the smaller communities, uh, did have authenticity of relationship, did have accountability. So these kind of things tended not to happen. Now, of course they certainly could, so they can always, uh, given our sinful nature, uh, mm-hmm game any system, but they tended to be more, more genuine because you were in a smaller community of people who knew, who knew you beyond just shaking hands in the foyer on Sunday morning. 
and uh, and and it really seemed to make a difference. I am struck by the principle of three, twelve, and seventy in terms of social dynamics. Uh, these are the numbers that show up in Jesus's ministry, and sociologists, I think, have 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 uncovered some some data to show that you you tend to only be able to really know maybe two other people really well in terms of a very very deep, robust uh, relationship and accountability and sustained ministry together, together even. But then there's a, a, another circle of 12, 11 others you might be in touch with and have that type of engagement where you're accountable to them and you have a deep community and you're on mission together. And then there's a, a large group of 70 with Jesus or, or in our context, sometimes adult Bible fellowships, if that's the structure or, or small groups that might even grow to that size. But you get beyond that and sometimes it's, it, it, it's really hard to maintain a true connectivity which lead to so many of these problems, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are coming up to time. Is there anything else we'd like to add before we go? I'm committed to the local church. I mm-hmm. went through a period in my 20s when I thought, well, we I know better than that. Uh, but, you know, it's amazing how much the church learned in the uh, year, years it took me to get 30. <laughs> so I've returned. Uh, I respect my brothers and sisters who've got their own journey. But I would urge that wisdom is to return and help strengthen and build local church exemplifications of the body of Christ and not make in runs around it. I fully agree. Uh, Again, Hebrews 10 is clear that we should not neglect our assembling together, but there are seasons that we ought to step back and ask, well, uh, what is the best way to do that? And how can we best gather for teaching worship community mission? Yes. Uh, just as happened, say, in the Reformation, where people were stepping back and asking the questions about how do we follow that, that clear teaching of Scripture that we need one another, we're a body, in our current reality. And does that mean doing things as we always have? Well, maybe not. There are uh, times when we need to, and I think the Lord leads us and gives us opportunities to go back to the scriptures, to study them, to understand best, how do we live out these, these commandments concerning our gathering and being on mission together in our current context. And that's what's happening, I think, today. Yeah. I think it is encouraging that people, especially Christians, are looking around and thinking, okay, you know, how can we align this more with scripture? How can we manifest this, this beautiful picture of the church that Christ has promised us that the Holy Spirit has enabled in us together? Well said. All right. Well, I think that will end our episode, gentlemen. Thank you so much for being with us. I'll see you too. Good to be with you. Thanks so much, JP and Jordan, for a fascinating conversation. Mm-hmm. Loving these. These are, great. these are great. They're fun. They're fun. I really enjoy it. Love you guys. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye, JP. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith, seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.